Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are Matt Gardner and Pradeep Dasigi from the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. All right, today our guest is Marta Rekasens, who is a research scientist at Google. Marta, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. It's good to talk to you. Marta has done a lot of really interesting work on coreference resolution. That's what her PhD thesis focused on. And that work has been really influential for me for many years in how I think about coreference resolution and even several other problems too. And so I thought Marta would be a great person to have on to talk about coreference resolution with us. So thanks for coming on. So maybe we can start out by Marta, you just explaining what coreference resolution is. Maybe that's a little bit big, yes. but do your best. <laughs> yes, no, I think it's quite easy to understand. And I, I've been asked that question a lot. So yeah, language, we use language to talk about the world. And so there's this connection that the things we talk about refer and connect to things in the world. That's what's called a linguistic reference. And as we talk, we can talk about the same thing multiple times. Like now I'm talking to you and I'll refer to you multiple times. So when I refer to something that I already referred to previously in the discourse, we say that that's coreference. Those two mentions co-refer, meaning those two expressions refer to the same thing, which is an entity. And usually it's said that two mentions or two expressions refer if they co-refer, if they refer to the same thing in the real world. I think of it as if they refer to the same discourse entity. <laughs> and then there's the connection of how discourse entities connect with the real world, of course. But yeah, that's getting a bit more into the details. Yeah. Do you have a difference between a discourse entity and a real world entity? Yes. So when we talk, we create hypothetical entities. I can say, oh, I wish I was able to go to the beach I dreamt about. And we build hypothetical things. I can even play with entities in a playful way. And that's going towards some of my work. but. I can say, oh, when I was little, I liked doing that. But later on, I stopped liking that. And I can say, well, little Marta liked that, but older Marta doesn't like that. So, you know, I very language is very flexible and allows me to split myself into multiple selves. And that's totally allowed in language. But of course, the real Marta is not being split. There's just that one entity. So I can build all those entities as discourse entities, but then how they connect to the wall that then can, it's not a one-to-one mapping. Yeah. Yeah. This is interesting. So at a, at a high level, we, uh, I guess another, another example related to this is uh, morning star and evening star and how people refer to the same planet as uh, two different names uh, with two different names for, for a long time before they realize that it's the uh, same planet Mercury, right? I guess. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's very similar. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So we can think of co-reference resolution broadly as clustering discourse entities, figuring out which discourse entities are the same thing in a discourse. But I guess I'm still a little bit unclear on what exactly is a discourse entity. Is this a noun phrase? Is it is like what things are discourse entities? Yeah, that's a good question. So usually uh, we think that the, the the simplest way is to think of entities as objects and then 
objects means starting from yeah, the straightforward physical objects, then including people, locations, those are objects, those are things. And then we can include more abstract things, you know, thoughts, wishes. Usually we talk about objects as noun phrases, as Matt was saying, but then it gets further complicated than when we say, oh, so events, how about events? <laughs> so events can be also nominalized and I can say, you know, the concert I went to or the thing that happened this morning and then you're turning an event into uh, a thing so that you can refer to it. And yeah, there's also some work on what's called event reference. You can say, oh, I fell this morning. It hurt me. So the falling is what hurt me. But that's been considered a separate class of reference, event reference. So usually the NLP task of reference resolution is restricted to these objects that are the non-event objects. But sometimes there is a blurry line where things get a bit messy. Do you know at all why there's a distinction between these two things? Oh, objects and events? Like, like treating these as separate tasks in some sense, that there's co-reference that's just objects and then event co-ref, which is different. I mean, yeah, it's uh, so a very core aspect of language is this distinction of, oh, uh, there are objects, things we talk about, and then the things that happen to those. It's kind of the noun-verb distinction in language. So the moment you want to more holistically include everything, you start getting into the verb territory. And in, I think NLP, you know, NLP is very hard because we try to make, we need discrete tasks for a thing that's not discrete, that's language. So the way the, the reference resolution task was defined, it had to make put boundaries somewhere and make the task feasible. So I think that was a way to creating, I wouldn't say an artificial task, but a task that we could set boundaries and define clearly. And we wanted to leave verbs outside of it so that it didn't become too invisible. Interesting. Yeah. So just feasibility. I get. I guess I, I think frequently when I think about this about, I think this is a canonical example, Rome destroyed Carthage and Rome's destruction of Carthage. At least this is an example I see yeah. in, in a few different places when people talk about NLP. And then if you say like Rome's destruction of Carthage in some year, and then later I refer to it, I, I say this destruction, this is now nominal co-reference because it's destruction in both cases and, and would, would fall under like the typical um, yeah. co-reference resolution task that we've defined and not event co-reference. But if I just change the first mention from Rome's destruction of Carthage to Rome destroyed Carthage in some year, and then later I say this destruction, I didn't really change anything but now all of a sudden it goes into this other task definition. Yeah, examples like this uh, seem to imply that, yeah, we're setting this artificial boundary. But if you included all the events, then it would become a lot harder because, for example, events, you know, are, have this ongoing thing through time, right? So like the distraction lasted for a while, right? So even if you say, so then you can, even the noun, uh, when you say Rome's dist uh, uh, destruction, it can either refer to the result of the action or the ongoing action, right? Are you referring to the process of Rome being destroyed or the actual end point? And this example is still a bit 
straightforward, but the moment you'd include more complex events, like a recurrent event and <laughs> things that are happening more often, then it would become unfeasible. So yeah, it's true though that uh, then when you say, oh, if I say twice destruction, then I can say echo refer. Yes, it is a bit inconsistent, but it doesn't, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of messiness that happens in this phenomenon, I think, is, is what we're getting at here. And <laughs> I, what, I, what I've really liked about your work is trying to like grapple with this messiness, the boundary cases in really interesting ways. And I think we'll get to that towards the end, but, um, or I guess later in the discussion. But I guess for now, what people have done is say, this thing is really messy, but I can pick some subset of it and try mm -hmm. to make progress on that. And so the subset that people have typically picked, as you said, is let's just think about concrete objects, try not to deal with the messiness of events, and just say, if I have entities, let's, let's see if I can figure out if they're the same or not. Um, and then like, I think the first big research efforts in this direction were like ACE and MUC. You, uh, yeah. Th this is before my time. Do you know the, the history here? Yes, that's correct. And yeah, I was going to say, so now we're getting into the specific tasks. We said how, oh, let's, okay, simplify two objects. But then even with that, we can cover between like MUC and ACE, there were differences. So even within that, then, because we're setting this somewhat artificial boundaries, we don't have a, a strict alignment. Yeah, the, I think the very first task was MAC in the uh, 90s, late 90s. And yeah, in MAC, they had a set of, for that task, it was motivated by some existing tasks on, I think, terrorist documents and something else. So those are the sort of objects that were in that task. And it was focused only on English. And one distinguishing thing there, and uh, both yet yeah, there, and yeah, and then a difference between Mac and Ace, which came a bit later, but was kind of a follow up. Follow up was whether you annotate singletons or not. <laughs> so what are singletons? Singletons are entities that are only referred to once in the discourse. So we talked about coreference being when you refer to the same entity multiple times. But there are all these entities that we just refer to once in, in a discourse. Usually, you refer to entities just once. Uh, you refer to many entities just once. And it's just a very few entities that will be mentioned multiple times in a discourse. So in MAC, they define, they annotated uh, the coreference mentions for only mentions that would be in a coreference relationship. Whereas in ACE, they annotated all the entity mentions, whether singleton or coreferent. And that's already, yeah, adding then a difference because then in one task, systems are only expected to identify mentions that will corefer. And then in the other task, also mentions that are entities that have a single mention. So here we have to like explicitly define what a discourse entity is in this context instead of pushing that away a little bit and saying, I only care if, if they co-refer. Right, because then you get into, is every noun phrase a mention, an entity mention, or noun phrases that are not referential? Yeah, seems really messy. That, I think of my, my first project on my thesis, which ended up being a silly direction, a kind of a misguided idea in the first place, 
was trying to do something like joint entity linking and co-reference resolution. And an example that made me realize that this was just a bad idea was the phrase, his first three decisions as a starter. This is a baseball pitcher. And a decision is something about baseball that I don't really know. But he was a starting pitcher. His first three decisions as a starter. And that is a noun phrase. It's it's a set of decisions. Is this a discourse entity? Like it, it's so specific. Like should it should any reasonable system call this a discourse entity? Like the, it, his first three decisions. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's when now. Yeah, uh, to the earlier conversation, we're getting into your decisions and entity. And yeah. now you are also bringing up the question of these entity sets, right? Uh, you yeah. have three decisions together. So do we have four entities there? each decision individually, and then one entity, that's the three of them as a collection. Oh, and yeah. that's relevant because then later in the discourse, you may use they, right? To refer yep. to all the decisions. Yep. And you may even say the first or the second. So you're splitting the set. Yeah, this is hard. Do you know how, how did ACE even try to tackle this? How do you decide what's an entity? Uh, usually those tasks, both Mac and ACE, because they are, were very focused on a specific domain, they identified the, the set of entity types they cared about, especially ACE, like uh, geopolitical entity, location, organization, person. And by restricting the set of entity types, then you can immediately leave out some of these okay. more blurry areas. But one contentious issue has always been nominal predicates and oppositions. So if you say, Barack Obama is the president. President, you see it, of course, in this nominal predicate with the popular verb is, where we usually see an adjective or a lot of times we'll have, you know, Obama is nice, but you can say Obama is the president. But is this a construction where you have two discourse entities and you're saying they are the same? Or is the president acting sort of as an adjective, saying a property of Barack Obama? <laughs> so some data sets have annotated these nominal predicates as mentions in themselves that then you co-refer with their subject and others have left those out. Yeah, and there's a similar issue with positives, right? So yes, if it's, it's not Barack same. Obama, yeah, is president versus Barack Obama, comma, president of the U.S., comma, same issue. Yeah. yeah. Is the issue here that the attribute the president would refer to different people at different times or is it something else? I mean, this... This is also something that can happen, but like if you had a text that was like Obama, blah, 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 and then later the president in that text, you are using the president, yeah, in a different time, in a different document, the president could refer to something else. But in that one, you're using the president to refer to the entity. But yeah, in, in that, in as a nominal predicate, the president is used kind of as an adjective, which again shows that it's a bit because it, it depends on the time, it's more of a property. Right. So uh, you could then say uh, somebody else was the president, is the mm -hmm. president, yeah. Yeah, okay, so we've talked about Mac and ACE, which were two very early co-reference data sets or efforts to study co-reference resolution. These days, it seems like onto notes is what people think of when they think of co-ref. Is, is onto notes related to the prior two data sets? I'm, I'm afraid I don't even know. No, it's not. Ontonotes uses the, the Connell data, which in turn is the Pentribank data. Yeah, so the Pentribank data set was this huge data set, very influential for parsing. 
And then later it was extended to include reference annotations. And yeah, that kind of replaced the previous efforts on Mac and A's. There was a lot more data, more domains, and then a few other languages. So yeah, it's true that Antonodes has become, especially for English and then a few other languages, has become the standard data set for coreference. Also, especially since there was uh, a couple of shared tasks using Antonodes. And I believe Antonodes does not annotate singleton mentions, going back to the prior discussion. And there was one released at, I believe it was EMNLP a couple of years ago called Preco like preschool co-reference, again, still English, but here they, so they tried to do simpler language, not newswire text, but they did annotate singleton mentions. So again, we have this dichotomy, muck and ace, and now we have onto notes in preco. Always, yeah. But I'm not familiar with preco. uh, Was that using onto notes data? No, a a totally new data set. The language was targeted to be earlier, like child level vocabulary annotated for coref yeah it's been an ongoing discussion i know yeah some researchers have expressed and some of the people who were involved in the antonodes annotation how maybe better decisions could have been annotating uh, singletons i mean the the other important factor is that whether you have singletons or not will change the evaluation scores oh man <laughs> uh, which of course then it becomes very <laughs> relevant since we always uh, at the end of the day like to have that number of how good the systems are but then it's like wait but yeah this data set has singletons that not and then the scores are not comparable one to one yeah Um, yeah though we should we should come back to this evaluation question in a minute i think there are a few other interesting data sets to talk about still first you were part of releasing one recently called gap you want to tell us about that one oh yes so GAP, I think, is a very interesting data set. And there were two motivations, actually. One was most of the data sets, let's take onto nodes, you just take, let's take real data and you take a collection of a collection of documents from real sources. But then, as I was saying, in a text, like most of the entities, 80% of the entities, you just talk to them once in a text. You refer to, to them once. So then, okay, you have like 80% of entities that don't participate in a reference relationship. And then the remaining ones, you'll have a ranked plot line, what's the distribution of reference relationships. Then the remaining ones, you'll have a set of them that use proper names. And you can have a talking about San Francisco multiple times by just saying San Francisco. Then maybe you have a couple times where you may be or stylistic reasons more playful and say the city, the capital of Silicon Valley or the city in the Bay Area, things like that with a nominal phrase. And then there will be also a few times where you use a pronoun and you say it, right? And the same then for people, but a lot of times then you'll just have the uh, reference mentioned, use the same string. So it's like, oh, a reference is very easy. I just need to <laughs> identify to now phrases say San Francisco so yeah of course it's the same city but and I was saying then there is like what I end up calling the tail of coreference resolution which is maybe you know this 10% of mentions though that are very challenging because different reasons you're using like a nominal expression like the city or even more nuanced things like oh the the, the golden gate capital things like that so it really 
it's not that straightforward to identify. And then you may be using canons in a context where there, there's more than one likely match for the antecedent. Maybe you say, no, it is a lovely city, but you actually mentioned San Francisco and, and LA, right? So actually there are two in that context. So what you end up then with the reference is that you have like maybe 10% of mentions that are very challenging. But of course, when then you're evaluating on Antonodes or some other regular data set that includes these whole documents, even if you do a very good job on that tail, it's not really going to show up in your scores, maybe, right? And or compare with systems that maybe just use the, the same string or same head heuristic, or even if it's a learned system as a feature, that's, I think, what most learned systems end up learning. So what we then, uh, our motivation in GAP was, okay, let's build a data set that just includes really challenging examples for reference. And which, again, would be a subset of larger data sets. And then we, we use uh, Wikipedia and we extracted contexts where there would be a pronoun. And it was a personal pronoun, he and she. And that pronoun would have in their immediate context at least two competing antecedents. And by competing, I mean that the, the antecedents would match in gender and number. With the pronoun, and they would be also person, which we are doing he and she, which are personal pronouns. And yeah, that then becomes much harder because it's not just like, oh, let's find the closest antecedent that matches in gender number and, and entity type, but you do need, in general, some sort of wall knowledge, common sense, right. <laughs> to know then what's the right antecedent. And the other then, in doing that, we also then realize, you know, oh, he and she, there's a male and female. And actually, yeah, most of the texts have extracted texts from real sources. And of course, we see more male references than female references. So actually, we have a bias problem where systems have seen more training data for male pronouns, and they are better for males than females, and uh, all the bias in NLP problems. And so this data set tries to account for that? Yeah, so then what we did was, okay, let's try, you know, even if what we'll naturally extract will be unbiased in terms of having a lot more examples with he than she, we try to balance the number and just make sure there would be a matching number so that you'd have to do well in both genders. So it's quite close, I don't know. Do you compute any metrics for like how well you do on each one separately? Yeah, we split it. Uh, and then, yeah, there's a ratio metric. Great. Yeah, it's good to have resources like this for detecting all kinds of interesting things, including gender bias. I The last thing I want to talk about for like data sets is everything we've talked about has been in English. You brought up, you mentioned this in passing once earlier in this conversation. We should talk about it a little bit more. So what languages have annotated coreference data? Yeah, there's been a lot of work on coreference and as I said, since the MAC dataset was first created in, in the late 90s, a lot of groups uh, and for different languages have then created datasets for reference. Myself, I started at the University of Barcelona and we had a dataset for one for English, one, sorry, one for Spanish and one for Catalan. And yeah, my how I got started on this work was by adding reference annotations for Spanish and Catalan. 
And, and then, yeah, there have been other universities. Massimo Poesio has done a lot of work for Italian. Then we have in Germany a group that added German annotations for reference to the Tuba dataset. And then there are, yeah, Indian languages, groups in India that added for India. Uh, there's been the, uh, work done for Basque. So there are quite a lot of languages, but of course, each language doesn't have non-English languages don't have the same resources. So usually those data sets are smaller. And yeah. Do you know if there's a central place where someone looking could find all of these just in one place? Or do you kind of have to search the whole literature? That's, yeah, that's a great point. There's no nice, yeah, uh, that I know of any nice, yeah, central repository uh, linking to all those data sets. I think there are some surveys and publications that will mention several of them. But yeah, each one is locally maintained. Okay. okay. So you've studied CoREF in a few different languages. Would you say the phenomena that you have to handle are the same across languages or are they different? Well, as usual, in language, there are some universal things and some more specific things. Like coreference is a universal phenomenon, as we were saying. Like each language, of course, can refer to the same thing multiple times. But yeah, the way how you refer back to something and even uh, referring expressions by themselves to have some language specific features and each language is each language will do it slightly differently to take a very uh, trivial case that i think many listeners will understand is a pro drop languages right in pro drop languages like spanish um italian you don't you if it's the default subject that's clear in the context you don't use a, an explicit pronoun for the, uh, in subject position. So you know, instead of saying, oh, he said so, you just say, said so. And it's, but you know that you understand that the context is there, uh, that subject is there, it's just implicit. But of course, like for an NLP system, there is no explicit token. So there's nothing there. Yeah, this this is making me like think, well, wait a minute, what's a singleton mention if I have a pro drop? <laughs> if I mention an entity once and then it shows up in a, as a, a, that's, that entity shows up as a dropped subject, is this a singleton mention? Like, uh-oh. <laughs> it's not. It's not. Yeah, it's not a singleton entity. But yeah, unless there's been work to either add in the annotations or have a system that identifies those implicit mentions, in practice, it'll be yeah, treated mistakenly as a singleton. Yeah. And like even the annotation, like like the output of a system. I'm thinking of jumping ahead a little bit, but the models that we use take spans and say, are these two spans referring to the same thing? But if I have a ProDrop language, there's no span there. And so even like the fundamental modeling assumptions that we do are like just built on English and don't work for other things, which is, which is a problem. Yeah. And then a lot of the work that has targeted that uh, also for Japanese, it's usually there is a pre-processing component that tries to identify those implicit mentions first. So add something there, <laughs> like a null marker, to then do a reference on those. Interesting, yeah. Uh, oh, and another difference, just not related to pronouns, even, yeah, then non-phrases themselves. For example, English, or I would say I think English and German, Anglo-Saxon languages have a tendency to repeat more naturally proper names. Whereas if you take Spanish and Catalan, Stylistically, you try to avoid repeating 
So there is more nominal variations of, oh, I already said the newspaper, so now I, I should use a synonym or something else. <laughs> but then, of course, for the systems, that's a lot harder. Yeah, I think we get that in like English Newswire too. So I, I, rem- I did a small project at Google, actually, a few years ago on co-reference resolution. And we were looking at like, can I use the knowledge graph to improve co-reference resolution results? And so I was looking at like news articles from, what was it, the 2004 presidential election. And so we would get things like Barack Obama and John McCain, and then the Illinois senator and the Arizona senator. And like the Newswire uses these different phrases, both to give some variety and to inject information. And yeah, yeah, different domains will have yeah different styles exactly. Yeah. And uh, yeah, if you take a bio document, scientific text, where you don't want to leave room for ambiguity, then you avoid right as much as possible creating confusion. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm looking at the outline that we came up with and thinking we've had a really interesting discussion so far, and there's too much left to talk about. Um, I. <laughs> And I want to talk about your, your really interesting work on the boundaries of co-reference resolution. And so I think maybe we should just skip over the modeling stuff, which is interesting, but basically just like classify whether two spans are co-referent after like running it through a transformer these days. It's not groundbreaking and probably more interesting to talk yeah, about Yeah, us- usually the two approaches are either, yeah, you do the mentioned pair classification problem these two mentions correct or not, and then you need them to uh, resolve the pairwise decisions to build a whole entity, or more of a clustering or entity-based approach to all these mentions, not referred to the same. But yeah, uh, we can skip. Yeah, yeah. There, there was a lot of interesting history of like modeling developments in these two different paths, and I think everything is basically converged to this basic transformer that does this based on a, a model architecture by Kenton Lee, which is pretty good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, let's talk about the the boundaries of coreference resolution. I think the the first work of yours that I was aware of was on near identity coreference res- uh, relationships. Do you want to tell us what that is? Yeah. So yeah, that brings us back a bit to the beginning, right? Like how we constrain and set boundaries to coreference, but then we have these challenges of things that are like, well, uh, how do I more narrowly define this. So yeah, for near identity, uh, as I was saying in NLP, we need to make things discrete. But then as you annotate uh, a real text and you go, usually you start with num phrase, num phrase by num phrase, and you decide whether it's referential or not, you get into a lot of tricky cases that are like, you know, uh, when you we say Barack Obama did blah, 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 and he, blah, blah, blah. It's like very trivial. Okay, those two mentions refer. But yeah, in real text, you get into uh, a lot of mentions that it's not that trivial. So near identity try to capture these sort of boundary cases where it's not that straightforward. For example, one is metonymy. So metonymy is usually you use something else that's related with the thing to refer to that. So a very common one is the part-whole relationship. So you can say, oh, the pretty hat just arrived to mean the person wearing the hat, right? Although, of course, literally, you just refer to the hat, right? <laughs> so that's there are some metonymic references that become uh, conventionalized in our part of language, like the White House. The White House said, blah, blah, blah. 
And of course, it's because the government is located in the White House. But then in some contexts, it's not always clear whether it's truly a metonymy or not. And then when an annotator or then a system is forced to make a decision, well, there's room to say, yeah, those are truly referring to the same or not. There is this extra leap. So, but then, of course, our annotators and our systems are forced to say, well, do they co-refer? Yes or no. Yeah. <laughs> right? And we know also that's true now. There's been a lot of uh, work also in other tasks about uh, disagreements, right? Even in part of speech tagging, apparently uh, not every part of speech. It's not clear that every word has this one part of speech, right? So in co-reference, we started seeing that because then we had certain categories of words where we did see confusion about annotators. And then we identified certain types like metonymic references or those ones I was talking about earlier when you say, you know, Marta and then the little Marta, the older Marta, are those the same or not? We also covered sets, Sets are complicated. If I say, oh, 10,000 people died yesterday because of the virus, and then you say, oh, the people uh, that died, sometimes you will refer to kind of a subset of that big set, and it's not clear that it's exactly the same set. So, yeah, so we identified all different reasons why some mentions are particularly challenging to classify as either yes or not correct. And we then run an annotation study with parallel annotations on those. And yeah, it aligned well that where people had the most disagreements fell into those classes. Interestingly, though, if you explicitly ask the notators, identify these mentions that are more ambiguous in terms of reference, that was a very hard task and they were not able to do it. But then you have to get that signal indirectly. So you just ask people, but then you do get the disagreements for all those classes. That's interesting. So were, were these like expert trained linguists that were annotating this or random um, or average people? We tried uh, with average people. Sort of, I mean, not average, average, I guess, in between an expert linguist and an average NLP, at least connoisseur. But yeah, it was hard. An expert linguist would have been better, but still, I think getting the signal indirectly is a better. Do we have an estimate of how much noise was introduced into the annotations because of uh, such ambiguities? Uh, it's a good question. Um, yeah, not. I don't have a, an explicit number. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I guess I guess it's uh, it's a trade-off between actually getting some annotations and defining some concrete annotation guidelines and making them as accurate as possible, right? I mean, how do we how do we decide where to draw the line? I guess it's a gentle question. Yeah, right. Uh, that's what's sometimes very hard with some NLP tasks. We need to draw the line somewhere, and then um, in certain areas we do need to make an arbitrary decision or. Uh, more pragmatic one because language is just very fuzzy. Right. So, yeah, the other area uh, that I should mention is bridging resolution. So, bridging resolution is that if I'm talking uh, about yeah San Francisco, and then I say the bridge, right? Just because we were already talking about San Francisco, if I say the bridge, most people will be like, oh, the bridge of San Francisco. Right? And that's the Golden Gate. So the bridge in itself is not co It wasn't mentioned before. 
but resolving the reference does need that previous uh, reference to San Francisco, right? So that's the bridging. Actually, I used the bridge to exemplify the bridging. That was not intended, but... <laughs> <laughs> when you were describing metonymy, I felt like it, someone might be confused on the difference between metonymy and bridging. Do you have any example that clarifies this? Because for instance, like the Golden Gate Bridge, maybe in in one context that could be a bridging kind of referent. Is is it possible to have like the same basic construction be either metonymic or bridging? I mean, usually in metonymy, you are referring to the same thing. It's just that you are using uh for like the for the specific part hole and there are others. The part hole you'll use a part or you can use yet something that's connected to that. But like you could say I could, of course, use the Golden Gate or the bridge itself as a reference also in a metonymic way. Like, I really enjoyed living in the Golden Gate. That would be a bit forced, but somebody could understand it as meaning you enjoyed living in San Francisco. But then in bridging, it's different because then bridging, you'll truly refer to something else. It's a different entity. But in order to understand what you're referring to, I need... This, there's this dependency on another entity in the discourse. But they are not co-referent in that case. <clears throat> so the, let me see if I can give an example to see if I, I'm understanding this right. So you mentioned the White House before. So I could say like the White House made a statement today about protests in Chicago. The press secretary in the press conference said something, something. The White House is... So what's the relationship between White House and press secretary? <laughs> well. Now you're starting to get into the, yeah, the fuzzy near ones. So yeah, the press secretary, you'll, uh, it's a bridging one. It's the press secretary of the White House, right? But you'll probably want to say that, yeah, the, who made the statement was just that press secretary person, right? Whereas the White House was standing for the whole government. But we are getting into the near identity case because then you're like, well, but truly the press secretary was also kind of just speaking for the whole government, right? So we could almost consider that you could have as well said the White Secretary, uh, the the White House made a statement, right? Maybe it doesn't matter that much that it's that specific person making the statement versus the White House as a whole. So those are, yeah, then the areas where technically there is no co-reference, but pragmatically it's almost like... And there's interesting work in the psycholinguistic literature that... In the past, I read, and it's, you know, they say a lot of times, actually, in real language speakers, we may not even be doing really full co-reference resolution. We can have what's considered a good enough interpretation. Just, oh, yeah, the White House, the press secretary, you kind of have them related, but you don't really think, is it really the same entity or not? <laughs> right? yeah. In a way that annotators, are, oh, we are forcing our systems to decide, right? Is this really the same or not. So like, I think there is room to really define a richer task, which tries to represent all the entities that come into play to understand, interpret the text, but have a richer representation of how they relate, connect to each other. And that can then help us understand then those references without just, okay, does this refer to the same or not? It's a bit too simplistic. Yeah, this is getting to the point that 
for me, your work has been really influential. I've, I've taken it to mean a particular thing, and you, you can tell me if, if what you think of my interpretation. I see this as pretty strong evidence for using natural language as an annotation format, because there are, there are lots of that. And I mean that, and you can realize that in a bunch of different ways, but because there are these cases that are like too fuzzy to like categorize, just like letting people use language to describe what's going on here, either as the label or maybe some kind of question answering kind of format to get at the, the nuances in a particular case. So I have, from your work, gotten like a, a strong push towards thinking, let's just use natural language annotation where, where it makes sense to, to annotate these tricky cases. What do you think of this? Yeah, that's uh, that would be a good way, at least when uh, we are annotating, to capture uh, in a richer way, of course, what's going on. But sometimes I think that's what Padib may also was getting to is that if then we bucket those more those cases that are harder with the with the rest, then we are adding noise to everything, right? But then, yeah, what do you do then with those? annotations like for the system we still need to decide then what will the system do right yeah evaluation and like end use become a lot more challenging to think about definitely do we just filter those out or do we then yeah have a targeted task for those yep um yep. but yeah but i think though at least for reference annotation tasks being able offer this chance that's not just a binary yes no would be helpful well, my, my last question for you, we're running short on time, is somewhat speculative. We've seen the emergence of these huge pre-trained language models, and, and we've had this long discussion about how interesting and complex the phenomenon co-reference is. Do you think these large pre-trained language models have any sense at all of, of co-ref, and will they ever? <laughs> I wish I had the answer. I, I want that answer. I mean... I think this, you know, there's a lot of debate these days on that. It also takes us to this recent paper by uh, Emily Bender, right, on form and meaning. So there are, yeah, we didn't talk a lot about what uh, information do we use and systems use to resolve coreference, right? Part of coreference relies on morphosyntactic information, just, you know, as I was referring earlier, like things like number agreement, right? Does this parameter have the same uh, number with its antecedent and the same entity type? And some of these signals, I think, uh, are very are available because they are form signals. So I think some of these neural nets can then learn that and uh, automatically learn that. But then as we're starting then to get into the whole knowledge that sometimes is required, Oh yeah, I haven't mentioned when you asked me about GAP, one one of the examples that has always been very uh, cool in my research group, which is there was this example that mentioned Barack Obama and then mentioned Barack Obama hearing the news about Steve Jobs dying. So the example was like when Barack Obama heard of yeah, so the text is like 37 years after starting Apple in his parents' garage. Steve Jobs left behind him one of the globe's most powerful brands. When he died, Barack Obama called him one of the greatest innovators of all time. Yeah, yeah, that's hard. Obviously, as a human, when you hear when he died, Barack Obama, blah, 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 you know it's Steve Jobs. But if the follow-up had been when he heard the news, Barack Obama called him one of the greatest innovators 
of all time. Yeah, as a human, you're like, oh, now it's uh, Barack Obama, right? When he heard the news, the other one is dead. But it's the same construction, right? So yeah, some of these, we ourselves run yeah, transformers and then there's been uh, neural nets using the gap data set. And they are getting even some of these uh, trickier cases of common sense, right? And I'm sure they are learning some sort of common sense clues from things that are in the document. Maybe, yeah, there is that diet verb and then they end up uh, learning some representation that captures that meaning. But to what point they are really like, again, like what does it mean that uh, an NLP system understands language, right? Yeah. What does it mean? Can they do the task or do they really have similar representations that we do? I don't think they're building quite the common sense or world knowledge that we're using for a lot of these relations. But at the same time, as we were saying, correction resolution is a bit fuzzy in some cases. And I do think that these more continuous representations that neural nets are using can be especially useful for that. They can represent meanings in a more continuous way, fuzzier way that may be better than in the old days when we were using WarNet to decide what's the category of this one word in the sense. Yeah, interesting. Thanks for your thoughts. I guess I, when I think about all of this form and meaning stuff, it turned like co-ref resolution actually it seems like one of the more salient cases to me because it seems totally plausible to me that just by doing language modeling, knowing that these two noun phrases, uh, just assume the simple co-ref case, like let's let's mm -hmm. forget about the, the complex boundary cases, whatever, knowing that this pronoun refers to this antecedent is really important from a language modeling perspective. And so it seems totally plausible that a model could induce some latent knowledge of simple co-ref. And it's, it's interesting to think about. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And uh, I, I've been very in interested in always better understanding what may be behind what the knowledge that the neural net is learning. One thing though to note is, I think those, and I haven't followed the work very closely, but I think most of the work is showing that they can get some of the uh, shorter uh, distance for reference relationship. But let's say sometimes in very in longer documents, you may mention some entities at the beginning and then the pronoun comes three, four sentences later or even longer. So those longer distance dependencies, though, I think would be harder to get for the systems because then it requires more. So the shorter ones right now are showing some promise, but yeah, the longer distance ones are harder. Yeah. And that, like, if that's the way that you pose it, then you say, okay, let's just make a bigger model like GPT-3 or GPT-4. And then it's, it's yeah, long enough it can do it. And what is it? Yeah. yeah it, it, it's interesting. Well, great. This was this was a really fun discussion. We are basically out of time, but is there anything quick that you wanted to cover before we end or any last thoughts? No, I, I worked on Coref and Resolution, you know, in the past. I, these days I'm not as directly working on it, although I think any NLP problem at some point touches on coreference because referring to language is understanding it. Sorry, I'm, I'm referring to the wall, yeah, uh, is understanding it. That, yeah, I think everyone uh, at some point will come across it. And it's a very interesting problem, very challenging, but I think that's why it's interesting. Yeah, great. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot.